Well, if you have your Bibles with you again, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1272. If you're a guest with us, we've been working verse by verse through the book of Titus, and we've come to the final section this morning. Uh, We will finish the book, Lord willing, this morning. And I hope the study through this little book has been helpful and enriching. It's certainly been challenging in various areas of our life and our church life. So Titus chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse number 9. And I'll speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning, final instructions, final instructions. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. And this is what the word of God says. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you, Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Have you ever been preparing to go on a date or on an outing with friends or on a trip and have made final instructions for those who will be watching your children, taking care of your pet, or keeping an eye on your house? If so you know the weight that these final instructions carry. If they're not heeded, your children may go to the emergency room. Your pet may go hungry, and your house may not survive. As we come to this final section of the book of Titus, we come to Paul's final instructions to his young protege and partner in the gospel. Titus's ministry on the island of Crete was coming to a close, and his replacement would be arriving shortly. It was Paul's desire that Titus would then join him. But before this transition of leadership took place, Titus had some unfinished work to accomplish. You will recall in Titus chapter 1 that Paul had left Titus on Crete to put what remained in order by appointing elders in every town by confronting false teachers, by teaching sound doctrine, by challenging the older members of the church to invest in the younger members of the church, by instructing everyone to adorn the doctrine of God in the way they live and in the way they work, by reminding them to be good citizens, and by insisting that the congregation be devoted to good works. Well, Paul concludes his letter with a final cluster of miscellaneous messages to Titus. And what unites these final verses 
is that they are all requests or instructions from Paul to Titus for Titus to do something. These are Paul's final instructions to Titus. And if Titus was going to finish his assignment faithfully, he would need to avoid the foolish, warn the divisive, devote himself to good works, and depend upon grace. And if you and I are going to finish faithful, we need to heed those same instructions. So look with me first of all in verse number 9 and see the instruction to avoid the foolish. He writes, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now you'll notice at the very beginning of verse 9, he uses a transition word, the word but. And it contrasts the good works that believers engage in that are excellent and profitable for all people that he described in verse number 8 of chapter 3 with the controversies, divisions, and quarrels that are unprofitable and worthless that he is referring to in verse number 9. And with this contrast and transition, Paul is once again addressing the false teachers on the island of Crete. These are the insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers that Paul referenced in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. Those false teachers who were upsetting whole families in the church by their teaching. And it appears from verse number 9 that these false teachers were Jews who in their teaching were majoring on fanciful stories about Jewish ancestors whose names appeared in all of the genealogy accounts of the Old Testament. Additionally, it appears that these false teachers went astray in their interpretation and application of Old Testament law. But if you'll notice carefully in verse number 9, an atmosphere of dissension where word battles were taking place and quarrels over the false teachers' legalistic demands and allegorical teachings of the Old Testament had clouded the culture and the atmosphere among all of the churches on the island of Crete. There were quarrels, dissensions. Gordon Fee sums up this problem that Paul is addressing and describing in verse 9, saying apparently some Hellenistic Jews on Crete who had accepted Christ were also promoting continuing connections with Judaism, especially in the form of speculative teaching and a rigorous devotion to rules and regulations above Scripture. Timothy. Paul's other protege in the ministry had encountered the same problem in the church at Ephesus. And this is what Paul said to him in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's the key, a different doctrine. Nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
and certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And this is the same atmosphere and context that Titus was dealing with. False teachers talking about things that they knew nothing about, swerving from the truth, developing different doctrines based on speculation rather than stewardship of the truth that comes from God. And so you'll notice in verse number nine that Paul gives Titus clear instructions for how to deal with this problem in the church. Do you see it? Titus is to avoid that which is foolish, unprofitable, and worthless. Now, the key word is the word avoid. It literally means to turn oneself around, to purposely turn away from something or someone. It is a word of command. It is a present imperative. Paul is commanding Titus to do this. And by the language of the command, this is to be a constant, consistent avoidance. It doesn't mean that Titus just avoids these quarrels and divisions and trouble once. He continually, consistently avoids them. Now, Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary on this passage in the book of Titus, gave a helpful statement that I have found to be true in all of these years of ministry that I have experienced. And it's in the context of dealing with division and controversy that he's talking about here in verse number nine. And here is what Warren Wiersbe writes. He says, I have learned that professed Christians who like to argue about the Bible are usually covering up some sin in their lives or they're very insecure or they're unhappy in their work or at home. End quote. And I found that to be true. Normally, when you have a problem with the Bible, it's because the Bible has convicted you of something that's going on in your life. And rather deal with the conviction, you would rather argue with God and argue with his word. And it's really just a symptom of the kind of issue that Paul is addressing in verse number nine. And so Titus and the other leaders in the church, listen carefully, they were not to allow their time, their attention, their energy and their strength to be usurped. Uh, look at the text by these foolish controversies. That's how Paul describes them. They are foolish controversies. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, the word foolish that he uses is actually where we get our word in English, moron or moronic. And when this word is used of a person, it means that they're stupid, foolish or nonsensical. And it, when it's used for ideas or conversations or topics, as it is in this context, listen carefully. It means it's futile, empty and pointless. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5 and verse 13, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14 and verse 34, when Jesus gave the illustration of salt, losing its saltiness, he used the verb form of this same word, moron, to mean flavorless. And his point, of course, in those passages were, when salt has lost its saltiness, 
it's pointless. And that's the point that Paul is making about these divisions and these foolish controversies in the church. These false teachers were being contentious. They were seeking to engage the church in empty discussions and pointless debates. And at the end of it all, it was empty, it was futile, it was pointless, it was a waste of time. Thus his counsel, avoid it. Don't get engaged in it. Now look at the text. Why should he avoid it? Well, Paul gives him the answer. He says these controversies are unprofitable and they're worthless. Listen to me, friend. Foolish controversies never lead to Christ-like character. Foolish controversies never lead to good works. I'll tell you where foolish controversies always lead. They always lead to the sin of pride. They always lead to selfishness. They always lead to division. And they end in devastation. That's where this takes us. That's why Charles Swindoll said, foolish controversies will consume our time, drain our energy, and weaken our testimony. And did you know that the New Testament is full of powerful pictures of what foolish controversies lead us to. They, they give, these passages give damaging results of false teaching. And here's a summary of them. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 24, false teaching and foolish controversies unsettle our souls. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19, they shipwreck our faith. In verse 20 of the same chapter, they lead to blasphemy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14, they lead to the ruin of those who hear them. In verse 16 of that same chapter, they produce ungodliness. And in verse 17 of that same chapter, they spread throughout the church like gangrene. And the antidote for the unprofitable, worthless controversies of the foolish is the profitableness of Scripture. Now, I want you to listen to this contrast. You've been listening to me for about 10 minutes to explain to you verse number nine and the avoidance of foolish controversies that Paul is giving to Titus and he's giving to us. And the scripture is clear. The reason that Titus is to do this is it is pointless. You will go into an empty pursuit in this area. But at the same time, scripture contrasts what we should pursue that is profitable to us. And here's the contrast. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You're familiar with the passage. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God. And listen to the next phrase. And profitable. You don't spend your time on foolishness and craziness. You spend your time on what gives you profit. That's the point. And the, what gives you profit is the Bible. And why does the Bible give you profit? Because it is the only book that is inspired and breathed out by God himself. And because it is inspired and breathed out by God, it is profitable for every single area of our life. That's why he goes on in this passage. And he says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And here's the point, friends. When the people of God gather together, there is one book and one book only. There is one teaching and one teaching only that the people of God should humble themselves under and submit to. And that is the Bible. And if you're going to a church where the church does not teach and preach the Bible, you don't have a real church. That's the point. And so you don't get off on all of these tangents. They're futile. They're empty. They're pointless. Avoiding the foolish is not an option. It's essential. And you say, well, why are you making this point home? Because the modern church has been duped into foolish controversies over the last three or four years. We're arguing and dividing over ourselves, over politics, over health regulations, over obscure points of theology, over a whole host of, listen, personal opinions and preferences. It's caused us not to believe the best about one another. It's caused us to make false accusations towards one another. It's caused us to judge one another in a way that we've never judged one another before. And we've allowed all of these things to be elevated above the word of God. And you can disagree with me about what I've just said. You've got the right to be wrong this morning. And when this happens, it distracts the church and divides the church from the whole purpose and point of the church existing. And I want to remind every single one of us this morning, listen to your pastor. Doctrine is for life. Doctrine is for living. And if what you say you believe and what you say you embrace doesn't lead you to become more Christ-like in your character, if it doesn't lead you to be involved in good works and serving God and serving His people and serving others, if what you say you believe does not lead you into a deeper love for God and a deeper love for His people, there is something severely wrong in your life. You have just become an egghead. That's it. Doctrine is for living. And if it never translates into living, you've been caught up in the foolish. And it needs to be avoided. And so, are you avoiding the foolish? Well, we not only need to avoid the foolish, he tells us in verses 10 and 11 that we need to warn the divisive. Look carefully at the text. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, Paul gave a similar instruction to Titus in Titus chapter 1 urging his young protege to silence the false teachers. And in Titus chapter 1 and verse 11, this is what he said about him. He said, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Silence them. 
Don't give them a voice. Don't give them a platform. Don't give them a hearing. In verse 13 of Titus chapter 1, he says to rebuke them sharply so they may become sound in the faith. Silence them, rebuke them sharply. They're a danger. Now look, notice in verse 10 of Titus chapter 3. Paul refers to a person who stirs up division in the church. And the word division is the key word here in verse number 10. It's actually where we get our English word heretic. It literally means, according to Kenneth Woost, fitted or able to take or choose, to make a schism, to be factious. And as the centuries progressed, this word came to be someone who uh, held to a false doctrine. But its first century meaning here in the context of Titus chapter 3 refers to a person who is quarrelsome and they stir up factions through erroneous opinions. It's a person who's determined to go their own way and they try to gain people to follow them in that way. It's a, a divisive person in this context is one who refuses to accept true teaching that's revealed in the Bible and ref, prefers to choose for themselves what they will believe. And so they create factions in the church and divisions in the church. And so how does Paul tell Titus to deal with them? Do you see it in the text? He tells them three things. Look carefully. He says, first, he is to be warned. Titus and the other elders are to speak to the divisive person about the course of the action that they're pursuing and to warn them. And this person is to be told to stop disrupting the congregation, to stop pursuing their foolish controversies, to stop pursuing their sin. And if they listen, no further action is needed. But Paul tells Titus, if you look at the text, after you've warned them once, if they don't listen, secondly, you warn them a second time. You give them a second warning. You go back to them and say, what part of the first conversation didn't you understand? This is what God requires of you from his word. And after the second warning, if he doesn't listen, look carefully at the text. Number three, you are to remove them from the church. They're to be removed from membership. And they can't be reinstated until there's clear evidence of their confession of sin and repentance. He's clear. Now, his instructions to Titus actually complement what the Lord Jesus Christ taught in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, concerning church discipline. And in that passage, he says where the Christian who sins against another believer takes place, that Christian is to be confronted. And when he's confronted, if he refuses to acknowledge his sin and repent, a second confrontation is to take place with witnesses. And if he persists in his stubbornness after that second confrontation, he is to be taken before the church. And if he refuses the admonishment and correction of the church, he is to be cut off from all of the benefits of church membership, Christian fellowship, Christian service, and Christian worship. And so what Paul tells Titus is the same thing that Jesus tells us. It's simple and it's clear, but we don't like it, so we ignore it. Now, I want you to notice the text carefully. The sin that we confront in this context, it's public, 
It's habitual, it's serious, and it lacks repentance. That's how you know. Public, habitual, serious, lacking repentance. Charles Swindoll said, effective spiritual leadership does all things with compassion, but never at the expense of conviction. Did you hear that? Compassion, not at the expense of conviction. Effective spiritual leadership never fails to confront when necessary, just as a surgeon must cut out diseased tissue, so leaders in churches must confront those who will infect the body of Christ with discord and division and sin. They must be confronted. Now notice verse 11, and this is really the powerful point of these two verses in verse number 11. Paul summarizes the condition of this divisive person that he is talking about. And look at the description. Such a person is warped, sinful, and self-condemned. One author translated these characteristics this way. They're warped in character, they keep on sinning, and they've condemned themselves. This is where this kind of behavior and action leads. It leads to to being warped, sinful, and self-condemned. So what does he mean by that? Well, the word warped is the powerful word in the trio. It literally means to be twisted, distorted, or turned inside out. And the tense of the word means it is a settled state of mind. Here's how I would illustrate it. This person who has fallen into sin in this kind of activity, they're all knotted up. They look like a gigantic twisted pretzel. Every area of their life is in knots, it is twisted, and they're in a mess, and they're warped, and it's a settled state of mind. They're settled in this twistedness, and this inside-out twisting and thinking, look secondly, is a result of their sin. It causes them to justify their actions and their behavior and their beliefs. And they do that to make themselves feel better about what's going on in their life. They're all twisted up. It's a result of their sin. And they make excuses and justification for it so they'll feel better about it. Because, remember, they're settled in their warped thinking. And listen to me, church. As sure as I'm standing on this platform, what I've just described are some people in this room this very moment. You're all twisted up. It's a result of your sin and you're refusing to address it and acknowledge it. And you're trying to alleviate your conscience and make yourself feel better about your condition. And look where it leads. Do you see the third description? You become self-condemned. You judge your own self. You torture yourself. Why, Why am I doing this? I'm a failure. I'm no good. There's no hope for me. And then you keep on doing it and you stay in it because you're warped and you're twisted up and you're caught up in the cords of your sin, as Proverbs says. And you're trying yourself to to get out of it all and you can't get out of it all. And so then that just leads to the end of you just condemning yourself when all the time there's a life preserver in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ just waiting for you to cry out to him, confess your sin and find rescue. The philosophy of of tolerance and the desire to become unoffensive has pervaded our culture. 
And listen to me, church. It has creeped into the church and it drives the church to compromise. Heaven forbid. We talk about sin. We talk about judgment. We talk about hell. We talk about anything that is controversial because we want people to like us and to come. And the whole time we want them to like us and to come, we're deceiving them about the truth and about the truth about themselves. So in the end, church, I ask you, what does that really make us? What kind of church, what kind of Christians are we really at the end of the day if we compromise truth for the sake of being inoffensive and tolerant? We're hypocrites. We hold the truth and the reality of the world and everyone in the world in our hands, on our laps, right before our very eyes. And we would rather compromise than to be labeled a certain way than give the truth. And I want you to know this morning that to ignore the harm of false teaching to ignore and overlook continued sin is to serve as a disservice to the corporate body of Christ and it is to serve as the disservice for people who are struggling. Oh, listen to me. Church, we have no problem talking about someone's sin without ever talking to that person about their sin. And that is a problem. It is a problem. If you find yourself talking about someone else's sin more than you find yourself talking to them about their sin, there's something wrong with your heart. The Bible is clear in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 that we are to rescue those whom we find in their sin. And we will never, ever rescue someone, as James says in James chapter 5 and verse 19, from their disobedience, from their sin, or save their soul from death by talking about them instead of talking to them. The way you rescue, the way you give a life preserver, is that you care enough, you have enough compassion, you have enough burden for that person's soul, you see where their sin, their disobedience, their false belief, their false teaching is leading them. It is leading them to death. It is leading them to an eternity without God. And you see that and you know that and you care enough to throw a life preserver. And tell them. You warn them. It's not your responsibility to make them believe. It's not your responsibility to make them obey. Listen. It very much is your responsibility to warn them. And I'm issuing that same warning this morning. For those of you in this room who are caught in the cords of your sin. For those who are all twisted up, you're relishing your sin, pushing yourself away from God. Hear this warning from this pastor. It leads you to death. It leads you to destruction. It leads you to eternity without God. Do you need to be warned this morning? Is there someone in your life today that you need to warn? 
when we not only need to avoid the foolish and warn the divisive, Third, we also need to devote ourselves to good works. Look at verses 12 to 14. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Don't you always get tripped up on these last verses in Paul's letters where he just rattles off a bunch of names and people that you've never heard of? Like, what are you to do with that? And then when the pastor comes to that and he's reading and he's reading 20 commentaries and like everybody else dodged it, they don't know what to do with it either. What do you what do you do? You remember that it is inspired scripture and it's the word of God and there's truth in these verses. So let me show you what I gleaned from it. In verses 12 to 14, Paul is stressing the importance of Titus and the other believers in the churches to become faithful stewards, to spend their time and their energy and their resources on things that are excellent and fruitful. And the reason why he's doing this is because Paul modeled this kind of stewardship, this kind of ministry, and this kind of life. And this afternoon, while you're waiting for the football games to come on, grab your Bible, read Romans 16, read 1 Corinthians 16, 17 to 24, read Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18, and you will discover large circles of close friends and ministry partners whom Paul invested his time, his energy, his resources, and his affection. All of those passages are long lists of names that were associated with Paul. And this passage at the end of Titus is another example of that. In verse 12, we learn that either Artemis or Tychicus would replace Titus on the island of Crete to lead the churches. And Titus would go and join Paul. Now, we know nothing about Artemis. His name never appears anywhere else in the New Testament. But Tychicus is mentioned five times in the New Testament. He accompanied Paul on the missionary journey from Corinth to Asia Minor. He delivered Paul's letter to the church at Colossae and the letter to the church at Ephesus. Now Paul's proposing to send him to Crete to relieve Titus, and he will later send him to Rome to relieve, uh, from Rome to Ephesus to relieve Timothy. Paul referred to him as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. He was a close companion that Paul invested in now look at verse 13 in verse 13 paul urges titus to speed zenos and apollos on their way it's most likely that zenos and apollo were were carrying the letter of titus to titus to be read to the church and then they were moving on to another ministry assignment we know nothing about zenos he's not mentioned anywhere else in the new testament Apollos, on the other hand, is mentioned throughout the New Testament, and he's always mentioned favorably. He was an eloquent Jewish preacher of the gospel from Alexandria, who was mighty in the scriptures, who had been instructed in the way of the Lord, was fervent in spirit, speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. But he was only acquainted with the baptism of John, and so When he came to Ephesus and began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, took him aside, explained to him the way of God more accurately, and he became a mighty preacher and servant 
of Jesus Christ. Now, what's the point? What's the point of these names and this history and background in verses 12 and 13? Well, Titus was to follow Paul's example. Look at verse 13 and do everything that he could to help these brothers on their journey and make sure they lacked nothing. That's the key. He mentions all of these names, makes reference to their ministry, and commands Titus to help them and make sure they lack nothing. And when you study that phrase, they lack nothing, throughout the New Testament, it is always used in reference to those who are engaged in some form of Christian ministry. And so Paul is telling Titus, Titus, all this stuff that I'm telling you to teach the church in Titus chapter 2, you model for the church. You be a good steward of your ministry. You be a good steward of the resources that you've been given. After all, Titus, they don't belong to you. They belong to God. And Titus, you invest in these other men because they're faithful and they're serving the Lord and they're going places where you'll never go. And when you invest in them, you're making an investment in all of the people that they will touch. So Titus, invest. Now look at verse 14. This, this command and this principle of providing and helping and investing, it just wasn't for Titus. This was something that the whole congregation was to engage in. The whole congregation was to become generous. They were all to become good stewards. They were to invest their resources and their time and their energy and their effort into other people so the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ would advance. And look at what he says in verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Learn to devote themselves. The word learn is where we get the concept of discipleship. Titus, lead the church to grow in their discipleship by being generous stewards. Titus, lead the church to live with an open hand, not a closed one. You understand how that works, right? You have to have your hand open to get something. And so we're all really good at opening our hand to get something from God. And then when we get it, we think it belongs to us and we want to close it and hold on to it. And all the while forgetting the fact that God may have put something in our hands to keep our hand open to give it away to somebody else, to be generous, to make an investment in eternity. And friends, this concept isn't just about your money. It's not just about your resources. It's about your time. I would argue that time is the greatest resource that you've got. Because when you give someone of your time, you're giving someone of your life. And your days are numbered before an omnipotent, omniscient, holy God. And you've got a limited amount of time. And so when you give your time, you're giving your life. When you give your money, you're giving resources that God has given you. And oh, by the way, it's not your money to begin with. What do you have that you haven't received? It's making an investment so that the ministry will go on. It's being generous givers, generous stewards of time and talents and resources and energy. And why should we do this? Why should we devote ourselves to this? Why should this be a constant pattern of our life? Look at what he says. 
so you can help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Can I translate it for you? So that you'll be caught up in your life in good works, serving God with everything that he has given you. That these good works are to be a normal part of your life. And look at the text in verse 14. When you neglect them, when you're stingy, when you refuse to be committed and give your time, when you refuse to use the gifts that God has placed in your life through his Holy Spirit, when he saved you, when you refuse to do that and you neglect it, you become self-absorbed and unfruitful. Think about it this way. Lord willing, you stay a member of this church. When you die, they're going to bring your body in here and they're going to wheel it to the front. And we're going to have a service. And people are going to talk about you. Are you thinking about that day? I've been thinking about that day. What would people say? Do you want the pastor to come up and say, this, here lies so-and-so? They were unfruitful. They were unproductive. God had blessed them richly, and they did nothing with it for anybody else. They kept it all to themselves. So let's pray and go eat chicken. They're unfruitful. I've got nothing else to say to you. I've got nothing else to say about you. You live for yourself. You didn't live for eternity. Now you're in eternity. You want me to lie and make stuff up? Notice one more thing in the verse. In verses 12 and 13, a phrase is repeated twice. Do you see it? Do your best. Do your best, Titus. Give it all you got. Don't leave anything on the field. It's a matter of eternity. So how about it, church? Are you doing your best to learn to devote yourself to good works and live a productive, fruitful life for the glory of God and the kingdom of God? Are you? Well, notice with me finally. We not only need to avoid the foolish, warn the divisive, and devote ourselves to good works. Verse 15, we need to depend upon grace. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is a farewell statement from friends to friends. Notice what pulls it all together. The word all is used twice in this verse. All who were with Paul sent greetings and love to Titus and the churches on Crete. And like Paul, all of his companions knew the struggles that Titus had. And they knew the struggles that this church was facing. And they wanted Titus and the church to know that they weren't alone, that they were in the battle with them, that they loved them and believed in them and were praying for them. And I'll tell you, friends, when you're going through hard times, that's what makes all the difference in the world, knowing that you're loved, you're prayed for, and you're not alone. And this is what they expressed to Titus. And I believe it greatly encouraged him, knowing that they were in it with him. But now notice the second use of the word all. It's in the context of grace. Grace be with you all. It's striking that Paul ends this little book the way he began it. Do you remember how he began it? Look in Titus chapter 1 and verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, 
grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. He began by extending Titus grace and he ends by extending Titus and all the believers with him grace. It's a reminder, listen, it's a reminder, this is really important. In the Christian life and in Christian ministry, from beginning to end, it's grace. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor? I say it this way. Do you know, if you're a Christian here this morning, do you know why and how you got saved? Grace. God's grace. If it wasn't for his grace, you wouldn't be saved. That's it. If you're a Christian here this morning, not only did you get into the kingdom by God's grace, what's keeping you in the kingdom? Yourself? Well, that's absurd. None of us can keep ourselves in it. Right? What's keeping you in it? Grace. And when you get to heaven, what's going to have taken you to heaven? You? Really? You're that powerful. You can fly. No, grace is going to get you there. What gets a person in ministry? Grace. What keeps them in ministry and keeps them from quitting and giving up and getting discouraged and unstringing the bow and throwing in the towel? Grace. What keeps them finishing faithful to the very end when they cross the finish line? Grace. You see, from beginning to end, it's not really about you. It's all about him. And the reason why some of us are struggling is because we think it's all about us and we're forgetting him and leaving him out of the equation. And you will never earn God's favor and get right with him through his son in your own effort. That's why you need his grace. And the beautiful thing about grace, it's something that you don't deserve and it's something that you can't earn, but it's something that God lavishly gives. And what you could never get and earn and receive on your own, God graciously, lavishly pours it out and his supply of grace never runs out. So it doesn't matter how far your sin is taking you. It doesn't matter how deep you are in the hole. It doesn't matter how dark your life feels God's grace is bigger than all of that, and he can rescue you out of any pit you find yourself in this morning. But you got to humble yourself. You got to confess your sin. You got to turn from it, and you got to trust in and believe in the work of God's Son on the cross for you. And when you do that, you receive his grace. Some of you are discouraged. You're Christians. You've been Christians a long time. This world is affecting you. It's pressing in on you. The darkness that's surrounding you. You feel like it's invading your own life. You might be depressed, discouraged, just coasting. I remind you this morning, grace is what keeps you in the fight. Grace is what revives your soul. Grace is what restores your joy. Grace is what gives you a vision for the future to end. It doesn't just save you and then leave you to struggle. It saves you and secures you and strengthens you so you can stand. God never saved you to sit. He saved you to stand and to stand firm and to hold your ground to the end. And only grace will do that in your life. Only grace. You're not strong enough. And if Titus is going to put what remained into order, 
Oh, he's got to have grace. He's got to have grace. Danny Aiken said, only God's grace will give us balance, self-control, wisdom, and endurance. And by God's grace and for God's glory, we'll be equipped and enabled to stand and serve, even when the odds are against us and the battle seems all but lost. Grace. Do you think your need for grace is any less than Titus's? The same grace that Paul commends to Titus is the same grace that I commend to you today. Grace for your marriage. Grace for your parenting. Grace for broken relationships. Grace for besetting sin. Grace for your discouragement. Grace. Oh, I quoted so many times when I come to this. I, I, I thought long and hard about something else that I could quote, but it's just the best. Third verse of Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares. Anybody relate to that line? I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and it's grace that'll lead me home. Grace, God's grace. Grace, greater than all of our sin. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace to pardon and cleanse from within. Were it not for grace, I'll tell you where I'd be, on a pointless road to nowhere, with my sin left up to me. Grace. Do you need his grace today? Do you need his grace for salvation? Oh, you've been coming to this church for a while, but you've never encountered Jesus Christ. You've been taught that going to heaven is by doing good works and being a good person and just doing your best, and in the end, the good will outweigh the bad and everything will be okay. And friend, if you've been here any time at all, you know that I've told you that's not true. The only way you get to heaven is through the grace of God, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you recognize you're a sinner today and you're lost without Christ. Would you cry out to him right where you're seated and ask him to save you today? Turn from your sins and trust in Christ today for your salvation. Those who are struggling, would you turn to Jesus, the one who saved you by grace? And would you ask him to strengthen you and renew you and restore you by grace? Oh, friends, when we don't heed these instructions, it's just like what happens when people don't heed our final instructions. We go to the emergency room. Something bad happens. Heed these final instructions. Let's pray.